All right, happy Easter, everybody. It's great to see all of you here. I want to welcome everyone, and like Jared said, if you're new, uh, we're especially glad that you made it a priority to worship with us. Man, this is a big day, and this has actually been a big weekend at Plum Creek. As you saw in that video, we had a blast at Easter Jam yesterday, and then Friday night... For Good Friday, we had a prayer and worship time in this room for hours, and man, that was a powerful thing. And then today, we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. We're going to dig into God's Word this morning, and all week, I have been really excited about what I get to share here today. Many of you know that we're in a sermon series called God's Kingdom Story. And in this series, we're going through the big story of the Bible, from creation to Christ. And if you haven't been around for this, I can't really cover everything that we've talked about so far, but I do have some good news. We printed up a bunch of books, and this is a summary of God's kingdom story. And we're going to be giving these out today as you leave here at the end of the service. Um, we have some students that will be passing these out. This is our gift to you. And this is not just for visitors. This is for everyone. We want you to have this because this is not just a story. This is what life is all about. We all need to know this story and live it out. And share it with as many people as possible. Now, just a heads up, after today, we have three more weeks in God's kingdom story. But I really encourage you to come back next week, because next Sunday, we're going to go through possibly the best chapter in this story. But I, I can't really say that, because today probably is the best chapter in the story. As you could guess, we're talking about Easter now. We're going to focus on Jesus as the risen King. But I'll tell you what, I, I've preached a lot of Easter sermons over the years, and I've never preached an Easter sermon quite like this one. We're going to look at what might be the strangest book in the whole Bible, the book of Revelation. You probably know that Revelation's got a bit of a reputation it's a little weird, uh, confusing. Some people think it's scary. Uh, back when I was a kid, I went to church a lot because my dad was a preacher. Uh, so we were there, you know, anytime church was open, uh, our family was there. And occasionally, on certain Sundays, I had a little trouble paying attention to the sermon. And dad, if you're watching this, I apologize. But on those days, I would sometimes flip to the back of my Bible and read a little bit out of the book of Revelation. And you would see all this crazy stuff, like creatures covered in eyeballs. There's a dragon. Uh, there's a prophecy about the sun turning black and the moon turning red like blood. And that's just the beginning. If you've read it, you know. But that brings up a question. Why would we read that book today? It's Easter. This is a day for pastel colors and bunnies and chocolate. Why, why would we do that? Well, I'll tell you. We're going to read some of Revelation because our view of Jesus is too small. 
You see, a lot of us know the basic story, the basic events around Easter. Jesus died on the cross on Friday, and then he rose again on Sunday. We've heard it many, many times. And some of us might get to the point where we're like, yeah, I get it. Um, I know what Jesus did. I know who he is. But I want to suggest something here. I want to suggest that it doesn't really matter how many times you've heard this story. The reality is, we still don't know who we're dealing with here. Our Jesus, our image of Jesus is too small. But guess what? The book of Revelation is going to help us here. This book blows up our small view of Jesus. So we'll start with a little background. Revelation was written by the Apostle John, one of the twelve. And out of the twelve disciples, he was probably closer to Jesus than anyone else. If you look at the cross, John was there at the cross all the way to the end until Jesus died. No one else stayed. And then years later, many years later, God blessed John with a vision of heaven. He got to see the world beyond this world. And in that vision, John also got to see Jesus. This time, Jesus did not look like that homeless rabbi John followed around for three years. This time, John saw Jesus as the risen Christ, the glorified Christ. He was beautiful and he was also terrifying. Look at what John writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He says, When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Pretty cool. Now, right here, John, uh, Jesus gave John a summary of the, the most important weekend in the history of the world. The, the weekend we're celebrating right now. You see, Jesus made a brief mention of the crucifixion there. He said, I was dead. So that was Friday, right? Jesus died on the cross. He was still dead on Saturday, but then Sunday came. Now, we need to go back and remember why Jesus died. We talked about this last week. If you were here, uh, there were two words we talked about a lot. Substitutionary atonement. And do you remember what those two words mean? It's really not too complicated. Uh, substitution, that means taking the place of another person. And atonement is to pay the price to cover a wrong that was done. And that's what Jesus did. He took our place to pay for the wrong that we've done. Because we've all done wrong, right? We've all sinned against God. But Jesus went to the cross and he paid for our wrongs with his life. That's why he died. It was the greatest act of love in history. So he was dead, but then on Sunday, he was alive. 
And he is still alive. That's what we celebrate today. Jesus did what no one else could do. When he walked out of that grave, he gave us hope. For followers of Jesus, this is where our hope comes from. Because of the resurrection, we can believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And because of the resurrection, we can believe that anyone who dies in him will live again. Now, these things are totally true, and they're totally amazing. Yet, our view of Jesus is still too small. So, let's get back to Revelation. Now, we need to understand that the book of Revelation is full of highly symbolic language. And when you read descriptions of Jesus in this book, it sometimes sounds like something straight out of Lord of the Rings. For example, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, John says, when Jesus showed up, he was holding seven stars in his right hand. And a big sharp sword was coming out of his mouth. Now, let's just say it. That's weird. So, what, what do we do with that kind of language? Was this really just a crazy dream? Or, or did John have an overactive imagination? Or did he find some magic mushrooms out in the woods? What's going on? Well, no, this was intentional. These descriptions are consistent with the rest of Scripture. Many of the Old Testament prophets described the Messiah using highly symbolic language. They used these images, pictures, symbols. And we're going to focus on two of those symbols today. Two symbols that describe the Messiah. And we see these in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. Jesus is described as, number one, a suffering lamb. And number two, a conquering lion. Now, we need to keep these two images front and center for the rest of this sermon. We, we don't want to forget these two images. And with that goal in mind, uh, I'm going to need some help out here. Uh, we've asked Rachel Burris and Bethany Koninger to come and share their artistic talent with us. Now, these two are going to paint these images of Jesus. We'll have the suffering lamb on one side and the conquering lion on the other side. And they'll be painting while I'm talking. Uh, so you need to multitask here. You can watch, but make sure you listen at the same time. Uh, we're going to see the images appear while we hear what the Bible says. So Rachel, Bethany, thank you for helping us out. But now as we read Scripture... Those two symbols give us very different views of Jesus. First of all, the, the Lamb of God is the Messiah who comes in love, and He lays down His life for His people. He is kind. He is compassionate. He sacrifices Himself for the good of others. But then, on the other side, we got this lion the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is the Messiah who comes in power, and he rules with perfect justice. Now, this Messiah, he destroys every enemy, and he wins every battle. He's good, 
perfectly good, but you don't want to get on his bad side. And like I said, we see both of these images throughout the Bible. Back in Exodus, second book of the Bible, the lamb appears at Passover. You might might have heard about the Passover lamb. This is when the people of Israel were still in captivity in Egypt. And God required every family to slaughter a lamb and then take the blood of that lamb and cover their doorpost. And that was a sign for the death angel to pass over that home so that the firstborn child in that home would be spared. Later on in the book of Leviticus, a lamb was one of the animals that was sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people. And then even later, when you get to the prophets, like the prophet Isaiah, we see the lamb as a prophecy of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet says, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So that's about Jesus, the the true sacrificial lamb. He laid down his life to be that substitutionary atonement. Then over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul sums it up really well. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So that's the lamb. You You see that all over the Bible. But then we've also got this lion. And the lion shows up in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 49. Uh, This is where the patriarch Jacob, he's blessing his sons, and he blesses one of his sons in a very special way, a boy named Judah, a man at this point. And Jacob, the dad, says to Judah, the son, boy, you are just like a lion, like the king of the jungle. And your descendants will rule and reign as kings. And one of your descendants will be not just a king, but the king. He will be the true lion, and all nations will honor him. And sure enough, Jesus was a descendant of Judah. He's the lion. And there's something we should know about this lion. He is dangerous. Check this out, uh, this verse from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, 38, the prophet says, Like a lion, he will leave his lair, and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. So what's that about? Well, that's a message for a group of nations that had angered God with their sin. The lion was coming, and these people were going to pay for their sin. We, we talked about this last week. God hates evil, and He will not allow sin to go unpunished. So the bottom line is, you don't want to mess with the lion of Judah. So we got these two images. Jesus is both lamb and lion. And it's interesting, I didn't know this until this week, But some of the ancient Jewish scholars, they looked at these descriptions and they were so different, they came to the conclusion that there would actually be two messiahs. 
They even had two different names. There would be Messiah ben Joseph. He would be the suffering servant. And then there would be Messiah ben David. He would be the conquering king. But those ancient Jewish scholars, they were wrong. Because Jesus is both. Both lion and lamb. And there's one place in the Bible where these two images come together in perfect unity. And guess where that is? It's the book of Revelation. So let's go back and take a closer look at John's vision. Now, uh, John, we read chapter 1 just a little bit where Jesus appears. But then in chapter 4, John gets a vision of God's throne room. Now, can you imagine that? God is there sitting on his throne. So John sees this, and then he also sees 24 elders and four really strange creatures. Uh, they're around the throne, and these elders and creatures are worshiping God day and night, nonstop. And then, at the beginning of chapter 5, something extraordinary happens. Let's read it. Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, God is on his throne here. He's holding a scroll in his right hand and that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And I'll mention just a couple things here. First, I want you to notice the number seven. Uh, that's important. This is another symbol. The number seven represents completion and perfection. That was a, a common symbol in that culture. And John uses this number throughout Revelation. And we're going to see it again very soon, so be ready for that. The other thing I'll point out here is this scroll. So what do you think that's about? Well, it is another symbol. And you could think of this scroll as like a land deed. It's the title deed for the earth. And this title is proof that God owns the earth. He's holding the scroll. Now we're ready to keep reading. Verse 2. And I, John, saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, at first glance, John seems overly emotional here, doesn't he? Seriously, man, it's a scroll. <laughs> What's the big deal? But don't forget, this scroll is the title deed of the earth. And when this scroll is opened, God will reclaim the earth as his own. But now that might bring up a question. Why would God need to do that? Why would he need to reclaim the earth? Doesn't it belong to him anyway? Absolutely. That is very true. However, ever since the Garden of Eden, there has been another power ruling the earth. That other power is the devil. 
And that may seem like a strange thing to say, but in John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus refers to the devil as the prince or the ruler of this world. And that actually makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because this world, in some ways, is good. So many things in this world are beautiful. But in other ways, this world is messed up, isn't it? Terrible things happen in this world every single day. Horrific things. And we find ourselves saying, how long will this go on? God, are you going to do something about this? When are you going to fix this mess? And that's how John felt. And that's why he's weeping. He knows what's in the scroll. And he knows when that scroll is opened, God will reclaim the earth. John is desperate for that to happen. You know, we often pray these words from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what we're praying for. We're praying for God to reclaim the earth. We're praying for His kingdom to come in its final and complete form. That will happen. And when it happens, every wrong will be made right. Evil, sin, the devil, death, those things will be destroyed once and for all. So we long for that day. We pray for that day. And we also, maybe not in these words, but we're also asking, who can open this scroll? Well, look at verse 5. John says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. The lion of Judah will do this job. John is really excited here. So he turns around to see this lion. But he gets a big surprise. Because he doesn't see a lion. Instead, he sees a lamb. And pardon me for saying this, but the lamb he sees is bizarre. <laughs> Let's read it. We're up to verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we just went next level weird again, didn't we? Now, let's sort this out. Remember what we said about the number seven. In the culture, the, the group that John is writing to, they would have understood this. The number seven represents completion perfection. They also would have understood these other two symbols, the horns and the eyes. Horns represented power and strength. Eyes represented vision and knowledge. So when you put all these things together, it's very clear. This lamb has total authority, perfect power. He also has perfect vision and knowledge. This lamb sees everything, past, present, and future. Nothing is hidden from him. But then 
Why is the lamb the only one able to open the scroll? Well, what else do we see here? This lamb looks like it's been slain or slaughtered. And that's a reference to what? The crucifixion, the substitutionary atonement. And then what's unique about this lamb that looks like it's been slain? The lamb is standing up. Dead sheep don't stand up, right? And that is a reference to what? The resurrection. Jesus died, and now he is alive forever and ever. And through the resurrection, the Lion of Judah broke the power of sin and death. When Jesus rose from the dead, God's kingdom stormed into this world. And his kingdom will continue to expand from here. That process starts happening in the next verse. Verse 7. The Lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And right here, it's about to go down. Over the next few chapters... The lamb opens those seals, breaks open the seals one at a time, and each one of them sets off major events here in this world, cataclysmic events. We're talking apocalypse. But we're not going to read about those things today, because before the lamb opens the seals, something amazing happens in God's throne room. That's what we're going to read. Verse 8 says, And when he, the lamb, had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, I haven't said much about these creatures and the elders, but really, um, they're like representatives for all creation. They're representatives for every human nation. The important thing right here is for us to recognize what the elders and the creatures are doing. They're bowing down to Jesus, the Lamb. They're worshiping. Now, in verse 9, these elders and creatures, they start to sing. Check it out. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the only one able to open the scrolls. It's because of his sacrifice. His sacrifice made it possible for the people of this world to be reunited with the God of heaven. And before we move on, notice something here. This sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, it was for all people. Every nation, every tribe, this, it, what he did, it wasn't for some select group. God is not just pro-Israel. He's not just pro-America. He is pro-everyone. Every human being is precious to him. That includes the ones you like and the ones you don't like. He wants everyone to be with him. But let's get back to this amazing worship service. In verse 11, it's clear. Uh, We're just getting started here. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Okay, now picture this. We not only have the weird creatures and the elders worshiping Jesus, we now have angels by the thousands. It actually says 10,000 times 10,000. And for all you math people, how many is that? At the minimum, that would be 100 million angels worshiping Jesus. See what I'm talking about? Our view of Jesus is too small. Hold on. We're not done yet. Verse 13, check it out. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So what do we have now? Not just the elders, not just the creatures, not just the angels. We've got every living thing in existence by this point. There is no one not worshiping Jesus. Now, let me pause here. I know that Revelation is weird, but don't let the symbolic imagery throw you off. Don't, don't get hung up on, on the strangeness, because John is not writing a fantasy novel here. This is reality, but he's explaining things that we don't have words for. Human language cannot do justice to the greatness of Jesus. But this is real. These things will happen. It's not a dream. And you can see it in other parts of the Bible that aren't so strange. Uh, the Apostle Paul basically says the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. He says, a time is coming when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that includes everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. One day, we will worship Him. Whether we like it or not. Everyone in this room, everyone in this world will worship Jesus. Now, some of us will do that because we chose to do it here in this life. Some will do that because they have to. Even the ones who rejected Jesus in this life. Even the ones who will be separated from God forever. They will one day acknowledge that Jesus is who the Bible says He is. He is the Lamb of God slain for us. The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is also the Lion of Judah, the one who won the victory over sin and death. And that's why today is so important. Because of the resurrection, we can be confident that both of those statements are true. And before we leave here today, I want to make sure we all know why Easter matters. So let me give you three quick answers to one big question. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? in everyday life? Well, three things. First, the resurrection tells us that Jesus is for real. That's, that's what we were just saying. Uh, no one else can do what he did. No one else has power over death. 
Jesus proved that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Here's reason number two. The resurrection matters because it will change you. That's exactly what happened with the original disciples. When they saw that Jesus was alive again, man, those guys were never the same. They had this newfound courage and boldness. Why? Because they knew they were on the winning team. They were like, oh, so you're going to persecute me? All right, go ahead. Oh, so you're going to kill me? That's okay too. Because Jesus died and he rose again. And one day I will do that too. The resurrection will fuel your courage. And that, combined with the power of the Holy Spirit, that enables you to live the life that God calls you to live. And really, there are many reasons why the resurrection matters, but I'll give you just one more here today. The resurrection will give you hope. Over the past few weeks, we've heard some great testimonies from people here at Plum Creek who have been changed by Jesus. And before I close here, I want to share just one testimony. Now, this one is not from our church, but it hits close to home for me. I want to tell you about my friend Ed and his wife, Christy. Now, that's a picture of Ed right there. Um, back when I was in college, Ed was one of my roommates. Uh, we kind of lost touch over the years, but I still consider Ed a good friend. He was just always a lot of fun to be around. Uh, he would do anything for you. And uh, he, he wasn't perfect. He didn't claim to be perfect. But he was a sincere follower of Jesus. He was just real. What you saw was what you got. Just over two months ago, my friend Ed passed away unexpectedly. I saw it on Facebook. His wife, Christy, uh, posted that picture, and she shared the news. And when I saw that, it was like a kick in the gut. I wasn't ready for that. Because I, I know that life is short, but man, Ed's life seems really short. He was just one year older than me. Obviously, I am very young. <laughs> but... Even when you believe in Jesus, and even when you know that someone has gone to be with Jesus, death is still hard. So in a time like this, why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? What difference does it make? Well, I want to let Christy answer that question. Over the past two months, Christy has posted several updates and one of them showed up in my newsfeed a few days ago. And I asked her if she would mind me sharing a little here today. And she was okay with that. So let's listen. This past Tuesday, Christy wrote this. It's been two months since we celebrated Ed at a beautiful worship service and tailgate party. In these two months, I celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary. And I celebrated my 50th birthday. And then she thanked everyone who reached out with messages and meals and hugs. And, and then she said, this is a very emotional process. Every minute of every day, I feel a gaping hole in my heart. 
I feel a huge loss that feels like it will never go away. And I want to tell you that I am only making my way through this because of my relationship with our Heavenly Father. I want you to know that God, our Father, knows about loss. He gave His one and only Son. And I want you to know that I can only get through this situation because I know that one day I will sit at the throne of God, worshiping Him. And Ed will be right beside me. And I want to ask you if you have that peace that passes all understanding. Because when nothing else makes sense in all of this, I have Jesus. And then she invited people to come to church with her to celebrate Easter. And uh, when Christy messaged me the other day, she told me that five people accepted that invitation and they might be with her at church right now. And Christy said, I think Ed would be really proud of that. And I agree. But can you hear in Christy's words why the resurrection matters? She said, I know that one day I will sit at the throne of God, worshiping him, and Ed will be right there beside me. We know about that throne room, don't we? John told us about it in Revelation. And please know this, whoever you are and whatever you've been through and whatever you've done, God wants you to be there. That's why Jesus died. He loves you more than you could ever know. Let's not leave here with a small view of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the one who made it possible for us to come home to God. He is also the Lion of Judah. He conquered sin and death, and He will conquer every enemy. One day, death will be destroyed. The devil will be destroyed. Evil will be destroyed. The Lion of Judah will do that. And for all of us who have given our lives to Jesus, we know that death is not the end. We can look forward to worshiping Jesus forever, being in God's presence, and that's what we were made to do. That's where we all long to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. We can't truly understand how great you are. We can't understand the greatness of Jesus, but I thank you for revealing enough so that we can know you are so worthy of our praise and our worship and our lives, and we thank you for Jesus, for who he is and for what he has done. And I pray that we will be changed because of Jesus. I pray that for every single person here, that we will worship by choice, surrendering our lives to you and finding forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.